Thanks be to God. Good to see you all today. We're actually going to be continuing um, the conversation that we've had over the past couple of weeks, looking at a text from 2 Timothy 3. I want to begin, though, with something Eugene, Eugene Peterson once wrote. He said this, Contemporary spirituality desperately needs focus, precision, and roots. Focus on Christ, precision in the scriptures, and roots in a healthy tradition. Focus, precision, and roots. The necessity of roots for a healthy, vibrant spiritual life. You know, over the last several weeks at our house, we've been doing a lot of fall yard cleanup. Anybody else? This year for, that, for us, that included digging up, dividing, and then replanting, which I don't know why, digging up, dividing, and replanting dozens of irises. And I guess I should mention that I use the term we pretty liberally here. Nanette, I really hadn't, Nanette is home with a sick child, so I really had an opportunity to make you all think that I did the bulk of this work, but Nanette far and away did the bulk of that project. But I did get my hands dirty a little bit, and while I was working in that soil, digging up those roots, I spent some time thinking about this reality, the necessity of roots, the, the life and the beauty that proceeds, that will proceed for us in our backyard next spring, the life that proceeds when roots are planted firmly in healthy soil. The spiritual life, too, requires roots. And one way we tend to our spiritual root system is through continual exposure to, engagement with, immersion in the story of our scriptures. We've alluded to this over the past several weeks, but I want to dig into, I didn't even pick up on that pun when I wrote it, but I want to dig into the soil of that a little bit. Now, I, I want to dig into the last couple of verses in this passage that we've been looking in over the past couple of weeks. 2 Timothy 3, where Paul is encouraging his young friend Timothy to remain loyal to the gospel entrusted to him by Paul. Paul encourages him, you, you can remain loyal faithful in the face of both suffering and in the face of the chaos that is being caused by false teachers in the church in Ephesus. It is possible in the midst of all of that difficulty for you to remain faithful, and you can do it because you've been discipled. You have been formed deeply by both practices and relationships that ground you. So this is what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Last week, we looked at the fact that this process of discipleship is often a long, a lifelong uh, process that may even begin as early as childhood, focused on the idea that our interaction with children, rhythms and routines they are exposed to, even from a young age, are shaping their little hearts and minds. Two weeks ago, we talked about the necessary ingredients in discipleship of both proximity and practice. 
Discipleship always occurs in proximity to other disciples, and it depends on practices that shape our loves and form our hearts and minds. And one of those practices that's highlighted in this text is consistent, deliberate engagement with Scripture. So this is where I want to turn our attention to today. I'll read through this section once again, and then we're going to focus on the the end of the text. But verse 14, we read this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul seems to say, look, Timothy, one of the reasons you are able to remain faithful is because you are grounded in, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, and you've been acquainted with them since you were tiny. Now, the sacred writings that Paul is referring to that Timothy has been acquainted with, of course, would be the Hebrew Bible. The New Testament canon at this point certainly wasn't established, but But not even all of the letters or the Gospels we find in our New Testament had been written when Paul is writing to Timothy. But as we spend our time focusing today on verses 16 and 17, it's my opinion that Paul's claims about the scriptures apply to the Hebrew scriptures, but also what we have in our New Testament. N.T. Wright argues that The authors of the New Testament, as they are producing these documents, as they're writing the Gospels or writing letters addressing specific situations in various churches, what we see Paul doing with Timothy here in 2 Timothy. N.T. Wright argues that the New Testament authors were conscious at the time of their writing of the unique vocation they had in writing in relaying the climax of this grand story that begins all the way back in Genesis, and they are continuing the story, which is culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament is a part of this grand story that is being told. Everything is building to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself says that he came to fulfill the Hebrew scriptures. We'll look at that more in a moment. But Wright suggests that the Jewish authors, their audience that first received these documents, the earliest Christians assumed that the scriptures they were reading were inspired. I believe that God's hand was working not only in the composition of these documents, but also in that process of guiding the church in subsequent generations as the Bible we have today was compiled, solidified, and then passed down. But it's important to understand that the Bible we have today didn't just fall from heaven in its current form. So let's consider briefly what the Bible is, what it is doing, and then how should we engage or approach it, which is 
a big conversation, one that we will not sufficiently deal with today, but at least we can begin exploring this. Now, I, I want to note this is not a lecture on the history of the Bible or the process by which the church solidified the collection we have today. Maybe we will have that conversation at some point. I think it's a conversation that's worthwhile. But it's important to note from the beginning that our Bible is an anthology. It isn't a single book. I mean, we have it bound as a single book today, but it is a collection of writings, a collection that spans hundreds of years from dozens of different authors written in three different languages and a variety of literary genres. A collection that I believe is both human and divine and tells the story of God's creation and salvation. The story of Jesus Christ bringing redemption to our world. Throughout the story, as we've already alluded to today, throughout the story, everything is building to and pointing to Jesus Christ. I, I don't think this can be stressed enough. If we read the Bible as a single, isolated book, or if we read it as a textbook, or if we read it all as a detailed historical instruction manual, we will get off track pretty quickly, I think. We, we have to take into account the type of literature we are reading. So sitting down with a history book and just reading that straight through is a very different process than going down to bookmarks or, or pagination, right? So when you walk into a bookstore, you recognize that there are different sections that contain different types of literature and understanding the, the book that you are pulling off the shelf and the type of literature that is impacts how you approach that book, how you engage with the material in it. So reading an instruction manual for your new lawnmower is a very different experience than reading the newspaper. Right? You have different assumptions that you are carrying with you into that process. It's a different process if you read a novel or a biography or a love letter. Hopefully, that's a different experience, reading a love letter versus reading a lawnmower manual. So the Bible is an anthology, a collection of writings from dozens of authors spanning hundreds of years, written in several different languages, but what is this collection doing? Well, it's telling a story. It is comprised of hundreds of stories, many of which are fascinating, inspiring. Some of them are troubling or even scandalous. I mean, it really has it all. But all of these individual stories, they are not really understood correctly if they are isolated. All of those individual stories are building one large meta-narrative. It is telling this grand story that reveals Jesus Christ as God incarnate who is saving the world and renewing the cosmos. In Matthew chapter 5, we get a little picture into how Jesus understood and interacted 
with the sacred writings, which I think is an important place for us to begin. Again, this is prior to the existence of our New Testament. He is speaking of the Hebrew scriptures. But he says, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I have come to fulfill them. Later in this discourse, he goes on to say, look, not one iota, not one dot will pass away until all is fulfilled. Iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. So maybe we, we could think of it like that random U that Canadians put into certain words like favor and honor. Like you can remove that U and it doesn't matter. Like in fact, it's actually easier to type the word. It's quicker. It, it, it's so inconsequential that, that to remove it is not a big deal. It's almost like Jesus is suggesting that you can take the most seemingly inconsequential letter or marking and not even that is going to pass away from the law or the prophets until all is fulfilled. His goal was not to do away with the scriptures or replace them. He says, I am fulfilling them. But even for Jesus, the scriptures were essential. Jesus is steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. He pointed repeatedly to not only their usefulness, but also their authority. They were constantly on his mind, it appears. I mean, even as he is hanging on the cross, some of the final words that we find on the lips of Jesus before his death, the Hebrew scriptures. We, we find him praying Psalm 22 in his most crucial, critical moment of pain. I, I think that is significant. But he also suggests that their whole point is that they would lead us to him. In John chapter 5, we read where Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The point of our scriptures, the point of the whole story, is that it would lead us to Jesus. So what does 2 Timothy 3 tell us about our scriptures? Focus in on those last couple of verses. Where Paul says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So Paul suggests that the scriptures are breathed out by God. They are inspired, we might say. Now what Paul is not suggesting is that my interpretation of our scriptures is inspired. And I think that is a mistake we often make. Well, however I read this, if the scriptures are inspired, my interpretation of it also must be inspired. That's not what he's suggesting. But these are divine and human documents written in a variety of different literary genres, giving us a picture of who our God is, who we are in relation to our God and in relation to one another, and what our purpose in this life is. So Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. Again, not my interpretation of it is inspired, but the scriptures are inspired. This is emphasizing not my ability to read and understand, but emphasizing God's creative activity in bringing forth our scriptures and really everything involved in that process 
to accomplish their intended purpose. Now, when Paul speaks of this idea of inspiration, it doesn't seem that he is getting too bogged down in developing a thorough and precise theory of inspiration. What exactly is it? And how did God do all of this working through human authors? That doesn't seem to be the focus. It seems that Paul is just simply affirming God did this. N.T. Wright defines inspiration when it comes to the Bible in this way, and I think it's really helpful. He said, inspiration is a shorthand way of thinking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended his people to have. So succinct, but I, for me personally, it's really quite helpful and unencumbered by something like maybe the unhelpful insistence that you must read every word of this inspired text literally in order to take it seriously. Because the reality is nobody reads it literally. Not all of it. I read much of it literally. But nobody reads all of it literally. I I don't have to believe that creation is audibly groaning as Paul suggests, to take that seriously and to believe that what Paul is saying is true. I don't have to believe that God is a sun, that God is a burning ball of fire in outer space in order to take the psalmist seriously and believe what the psalmist is saying is true. I don't have to think that the trees are clapping their hands. Trees don't have hands, right? They have branches and leaves, So it doesn't all have to be read literally in order for it to be true or reliable. So we can hold in tension the reality that all of it is inspired by God, as Paul says. God breathed it. His spirit is at work through the human authors in their unique situations, working through their unique personhood. Now, personally, I don't know that it's helpful to view the process of inspiration as though these human authors are sort of going into a trance and just having their hand move along the papyrus, unaware of what they are even writing. God inspired these writings that we have to such an extent that the human authors, guided by God, produced or wrote the books God intended his people to have. And as such, they are true. They're reliable. They are sufficient and authoritative. Or as Paul says here, they are useful in accomplishing their purposes. They are useful in teaching. We get a big picture of the grand sweep of this narrative through our scriptures. They're useful for correction for reproof, for training in righteousness. They are true and able to help shape us into the image of Christ, and as Paul says in this chapter, equipping us for every good work. So they're from God. God was working through human authors, inspiring them to produce the texts they produced. Okay, so having considered those two points, We continue with this. How do we then engage with our scriptures? And again, this is just beginning to dip our toes in this conversation. 
It's a much more involved conversation. But just as this text in 2 Timothy Timothy 3 teaches us some important things about the scriptures themselves, I also think it gives us some important insight into how we engage with them. You know, typically when we read, and I'm just talking about reading in general, not reading the Bible per se, but often when we read, we do so either for maybe the acquisition of information, or we may read for entertainment, or maybe we read just so we can lengthen that list of books that we read for the end of the year, right? So I have a goal to read 764 books this year. I better start chipping away at that goal. So information acquisition, entertainment, or just to add books to the list of books that I've read. I don't think those are the most important reasons we read, but those are some fairly common reasons to read. Reading the Bible, though, is done with an entirely different frame of mind. We do acquire information as we read our scriptures. There are building blocks of biblical literacy that I think are important. One of the things our new kids' curriculum is doing that they're working through even now, in this moment, is hoping to provide some of those building blocks of biblical literacy for our children. But the goal of those building blocks is not just so that they have those building blocks. The goal of any study of our Bible, it's not just to accumulate facts in our heads. It's not so that we can cite chapter and verse in order to win an argument. In fact, if winning an argument is the only impetus by which we engage with our scriptures, we've missed the point. The goal in all of our engagement with our scripture is that we might discover Jesus in this grand meta-narrative, that we might enter that story and be shaped by the story. So our scriptures are God-breathed, Paul says, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We just had a membership meeting a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things we went over in that membership meeting was our short purpose statement as a church, which is very simple. As a community of followers of Jesus, as a church, we seek to participate in the restorative work of God. There there is this participatory element to what we are doing when we gather. It, It is central to our purpose as a church. As a community following Jesus, we seek to participate in the restorative work of God. We have a part to play in this story that is being told throughout our scriptures. Into, I know this is the third time I've mentioned N.T. Wright, but it's just, he's, he's so helpful in this conversation, I think, for, for me anyway. But he has this great analogy. He, he says we could think about the Bible as a play, a play that has five acts. So we could think of act number one as creation. God speaks everything we see and know into existence. Act two would be the fall or the, the sin that fractures the shalom of creation from that first act. Act three would be Israel, which is far and away the bulk of the Old Testament. Act four, of course, is 
Jesus, the, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the redemption that Jesus is bringing to the entire cosmos, Act 5 is sort of an open-ended act, the church. So the early church, the, the global church, the church that you and I are a part of. We are actually right now in this fifth act of the story, of the play of our scriptures. And Wright argues that we, as a part of this play, are called to improvise, to live out our part in this grand story of Christ's redemption. But how in the world can we do that How can we live into the story if we are completely unfamiliar with the four acts that have come before? In order to faithfully live into and live out our part in the story, we have to become immersed and steeped in that story. That's how we discover where Jesus is leading us now. Our engagement with our scriptures, it is not just about learning facts. We do learn, but the point in all, even all of our learning, all of the acquisition of information that we go through, all of it is about transformation. We discover Jesus in this story, we enter the story, and we allow Jesus to transform us. It is possible to read the Bible daily It is possible to know it inside and out, to wax eloquently about all theological matters. It is possible to know the Bible up here and fail to be formed into the image of Christ. And what a tragedy. A devastating exercise in missing the point. We are immersed in our scriptures that we might understand the grand sweep of this story, that we might find Jesus as the fulfillment of the story, what everything is building to, and that we might enter that story of redemption and restoration. And I believe that immersion in that story that our scriptures is telling, that it does transform us. The reality is that stories in general have a unique power to change. This is one of the powerful things about a good film, or, or reading a novel. It's not just entertainment, but there is this process by which our imagination is widened, a process where we learn what it means to be human, and we are inspired to live in truer ways. The story told throughout our Bible changes the way we see the world, the way we understand our place in it, and changes how we live This is how, as Paul suggests here, how we become equipped for every good work. One practice, so this is sort of bringing to close the past several weeks, one practice that shapes our loves, what we've been talking about, one practice that changes us at a fundamental level is our engagement with our scriptures. And it changes us, it has the power to change us because Our scriptures are revealing God to us in Jesus Christ. These inspired writings by real individuals in the course of their real lives, inspired by the Holy Spirit to relay the story of God's redemption in Jesus Christ. And as such, they're helpful. They're profitable for teaching, 
for instruction, for correction, and training in righteousness. As Christians, we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus Christ, whom the Bible reveals to us. But our scriptures are really important. They are crucial in relaying that story and showing us, teaching us what it means to play our part in the story, teaching us what it means to follow this one, the king of the world who is restoring all things. Thanks be to God. Would you stand this morning as we respond by approaching the table of our Lord? We respond by coming to Jesus. This is where our scriptures lead us. This is where our entire gathering this morning is leading us. It is all about Jesus Christ and the redemption, the restoration that he brings to me personally, the restoration that he is bringing to the entire cosmos. So we celebrate today together the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, which gives meaning and purpose, which shows us who our God is. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. You can come forward, and when you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. I want to say a prayer for us by way of invitation. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for our scriptures. We are thankful that you have given us the means of knowing you, of discovering your story, your salvation, your redemption. We pray that we would be inspired to immerse ourselves in this story, understanding that we have no hope of living faithfully into the story unless we know where the story has been coming from and where it is going to. Give us strength, patience, commitment, faithfulness in these endeavors, we pray. And so we pray, blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant as we hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?